Welcome to Time in the Market, a podcast that profiles investors and their journeys. Time in the Market is brought to you by Shareholder Vote Exchange, the world's first marketplace for shareholder voting rights. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment advice. Please enjoy the show. My name is Stephen Zhu, and welcome to the latest episode of Time in the Market, a podcast that profiles investors and their journeys. Today, I have the pleasure of having Eric Brotman from BFG Financial Advisors on, along with Preston Yadigar, uh, our co-host for this podcast. Preston, would you like to say hi and kick us off? Sure. Excited to have Eric on, and I think it'll be an interesting discussion. Eric, why don't you uh, introduce yourself and your background? My name is Eric Brotman. I'm the CEO of BFG Financial Advisors in suburban Maryland, a suburb of Baltimore. Um, Started in this business in 1994, uh, which makes me a dinosaur in this particular conversation. But um, I I came into the business the the normal and natural way as an English major with a psychology background. Uh, It's a perfect path to finance, liberal arts. Um, Actually spent a couple of years. uh, I started at a brokerage firm in the legal department. Like many English majors, I thought I would go into law school. And I fell in love with the financial world and it really was an accident. And so having spent some time at a brokerage firm, I then spent some time at an insurance company. And in the late nineties, I had a chance to, to help found a a firm. And I did that with a a more senior partner and spent four years really watching and growing and learning and being mentored. Uh, And then in 2003, I started what was then Brotman Financial Group and is now BFG Financial Advisors. And we've been through uh, a couple of iterations, but, you know, 20 years ago, we were myself and two people. And now we have 19 folks and six financial advisors and clients in 37 some odd states. So it's uh, it's grown like like crazy. It's been a lot of fun. So you you started about 20 years ago, uh, just about. So how has it been? uh, You you know, you kind of mentioned how the the size of the firm and the team has kind of changed. But uh, are there any other changes, uh, I'd assume, with respect to how you manage, you know, the portfolio or the strategies you offer or um, other services? Well, certainly there's there's been a a refinement of the service model. And when you have growth, you have to have scale. And when you have more people, you suddenly have more infrastructure. And so, you know, we th- this this started as my practice. And now, um, arguably, I don't even run the place, which is lovely. Um, I get to be the visionary and the guy at 50,000 feet. Um, we have a, a COO and president who does an incredible job. And she basically runs the firm and is part of my succession plan. She'll be the next CEO of the organization in, in X number of years. Um, and we have a, a CIO. So we now have an investment committee. So when I started, I was choosing the investments myself. Now we have a committee of people and a research team, and we spend uh, certainly more time looking at that, but I spend almost no time looking at it personally. I get to spend much more time doing business development, doing um, uh, client relations, spending time with clients and not spending time looking at spreadsheets and and studying markets. And frankly, I don't miss it at all. I, I really prefer the human aspect of the planning. And we only work with families. We don't do any corporate work. So as a result, I, I really get to be part of those really human conversations every day. And that's the part that's fun for me. How would you characterize your firm's current approach to investing? So I'm sure there's a wide variety of age groups and investor types, like like families versus individuals, families with uh, children versus families with not. So I'm curious how uh, BFG financial advisors uh, really 
changes your approach depending on you know the structure of the investor. We manage several model portfolios that we use here uh, internally, and we actually have a model that is two that are equity models. Uh, one that is a fixed income model, and then we can mix and match a little bit based on risk tolerance and timeframes and and so forth. So um, if I could sum up our philosophy in in a, a short sentence, it would be that we are um, we are passive but not indexed. Um, you know we we very much believe that time in the market matters so that I'm in the right place today. Uh, it, we definitely believe that that if anyone could could actively manage and beat, indices on a regular basis. Um, first of all, there'd be islands named after them somewhere. Um, and second of all, the the big firms would be fighting over these folks. You know, I, I look back at Peter Lynch, who ran Fidelity's Magellan Fund for many, many years, and who beat the market every year and who was a total superstar and then retired. And Fidelity never found someone else who could do that, which makes me think that Peter Lynch, while brilliant, was also incredibly lucky to be at that, you know, to have a stretch of time where his strategy was actually in favor long enough that it worked repeatedly. And he retired just in time, probably when you think about it, you know, I, I think back to Bill Miller who ran uh, Leg Mason's um, Leg Mason's value trust. And he was on the cover of every magazine being the, the beating the S and P 13 straight years and the best investor in the world until he wasn't when 08 hit. Um, it was one of the worst performing U S equity funds on the planet because it had made some bets that worked until they didn't. And so I, I don't think you can routinely beat an index. I frankly don't try anymore. I think cost matters, particularly when you're dealing with things like large cap stocks. I mean, one large cap growth fund is going to look a whole lot like another. And if you're doing a lot of trading, if you're active and you happen to own two funds, you're just as likely to have one of your one of your fund managers buying a stock while the other one's selling a stock and you're not breaking even. You're actually losing because you're paying some taxes, some transaction costs and everything else. So I think it's important to own everything, but I don't like a pure index. You know, Jack Bogle and I, I'm sure, could arm wrestle over it. But at the end of the day, it is a strategy that is designed for cost. And I get that. But it mandates purchases and sales. And so to me, I don't want to be told what I must buy or when I must buy it. I don't want to be told what I must sell or when I must sell it, particularly since as soon as an index announces that some company is going to be joining or leaving the index, there's a stampede in or out. It affects the pricing. You're not going to get best executions. And you really wind up buying at the wrong time and selling at the wrong time basically all the time. So I like a buy and hold. I, I don't believe in, in constant trading or timing or any of that. But um, I, I don't think indexing is the answer. I think it's a strategy that that is lovely for, for do-it-yourselfers. But for people who manage money professionally, I think there are better ways. Oh, very interesting. You know, it's, it's a very subtle distinction between being a passive investor and being a, an indexing. And, you know, you can be passive at sort of the the fund level. You know, I own an ETF that, you know, S&P index fund. But, you know, it's very different because there's the turnover in the index, like you mentioned. So, you know, kind of going on then, how'd you arrive at your approach? It sounds like you studied uh, or researched uh, or followed many different successful investors. You know, you mentioned Peter Lynch and um, Bill Miller. We actually try to mirror the global weighting of the market, but also understand that Wayne Gretzky, one of the other great thinkers in our world, um, always said skate to where the puck is going, not to where the puck is. And so we'll start with the global weighting um, of the macroeconomic uh, conditions, and then we'll tilt slightly, really subtly, based on where we believe the puck is going. 
Um, and it's it's less about a timing thing and more about a a, a trend following type of thing. It certainly isn't uh, technical investing, or I'm not looking at charts and waiting for for V's and death crosses and whatever else. Uh, but I, I definitely believe that there are certain trends that are reasonably predictable: demographic chen, uh, trends, um, political or economic trends, things that that being aware of them matters. Um, but trying to put too much credence in them, I, I, we get surprised all the time. I mean, I'd no sooner bet on the next presidential election than I would the next Super Bowl. I, at the end of the day, the results will will continue to amaze and stun all of us. And so I, we're not trying to make bets based on things we can't control. That makes sense. So you've had this advisory practice for basically 20 years now. Yeah. But the thing that's caught our attention is uh, not only do you manage money, but there's a podcast on the side, the Don't Retire Graduate podcast. Yes. You know, it's funny. Initially, I didn't read graduate as the verb. I read it as the noun, not the verb. So it was don't retire graduate. Uh, actually, I never clarified this. I just convinced myself one way or the other. Uh, what is the right pronunciation of this word? Wow. You are the first person, Stephen, that's ever said that to me. And I've heard some very interesting things about the title of the of the book and the course and the, and the podcast and so forth. It, it's designed to be don't retire, graduate. And the, the premise of this, and, and this is something I've been preaching for many, many years, and I just found a pulpit to do it in the podcast verse, but um, I think retirement is a horrific idea and no one should do it. And I know that sounds counterintuitive because all of us from the day we get our first paycheck are thinking, oh, how soon can I quit? Like I've been at work for three full days and I'm ready to retire. The problem is that retirement is a akin to disappearing or retreating or becoming irrelevant. And so if you look at LinkedIn or other social media platforms, professional social media platforms, and you see somebody and it says, um, it says, uh, Eric Brotman retired. For all intents and purposes, it might as well say Eric Brotman deceased. Because no one is going to say, hey, there's somebody I can't wait to get to know. Boy, are we going to network. We're going to have a lot of fun with that guy. Because you assume that if it just says retired, I'm watching Oprah and playing shuffleboard. And it makes no sense at all. Like, it makes so much more sense to graduate to something. Think about when you finished high school or when you finished college or grad school or other, other things that are finite in nature. You look forward to it, you, you celebrate it, but then you're also moving on, you're advancing from it. Retirement's the only thing shy of death that you don't think about as advancing. I think you should advance. So I try to teach people that financial independence, whether you're 27 or 77, is a phenomenal goal. But I redefine retirement as the absence of needing to work, not the absence of working. Because if you're doing something you love because you feel like it and you happen to be doing it for money, I believe you're already retired. You're just retired with a paycheck. And by the same token, if you're doing something you hate for many, many, many years waiting to quit, that's a dreadful way to spend uh, your adult life. And, you know, so... so it used to be years ago, and I'm dating myself again, but it used to be that folks would enter the workforce at 18. Not everybody went to college. In fact, a lot of people didn't. So you'd start at 18. You'd work until you were 65. You'd retire mostly because you were incredibly elderly at 65 and you were dead by 72. Well, today you don't hit the workforce till 22, 24, 28. I mean, there's grad school plus student loans, which we could talk about all day. Then you want to retire when you're 55 and could live to be 107. What are you going to do for 50 years? So I, I think it's, and I, I'm glad you mentioned that because it isn't about graduate, it's about graduate, and it's about graduating into retirement 
with something to advance your life and to make sure that what could be half your adult life is spent doing something amazing, not sitting around waiting to die. You know, it's uh, it's it's funny you mentioned this. We actually had uh, someone on the podcast recently, Cody Berman, who's mentioning how there's this whole fire movement and he really ascribes to the financial independence part, but the retire early is not actually that desirable. It's, it's very similar uh, to what you're mentioning there. I'd be curious to know how does this play into the, you know, services or the offering or the relationship you have with your clients? Does it mean their allocations should be different or their their objectives should be different? Not necessarily their allocation because you're still trying to reach financial independence at potentially a, a set date or a set target. And at that moment, if you are in fact going to be living at least partially on your portfolio, it has to be generating income in, in effective ways. So I, I don't think it necessarily affects that. What it does affect is it affects the planning involved in retiring so that you're not just waking up one day and going, you know, the 30th of the month is my last day. You can do that, but literally you don't have a plan and it's not about the money. It's about knowing what you're going to do the next Monday when you suddenly wake up and have no place to be. And the challenge with that is that people who don't have to get out of the bed, out of bed every morning, stop getting out of bed every morning. And you used to get up at six o'clock and you'd start your day and then it was seven and then it was eight. And now you sleep till 1030 and you don't even put clothes on. You're in your pajamas all day watching television. That's dreadful. I don't want that. And I don't want that for any of the folks we represent. So we, we try to help them plan qualitatively in addition to planning quantitatively. The money, the math is relatively easy if you understand the math and the strategies. There's so many to choose from, but if you use a rational approach, a non-emotional approach to investing, and if you make decisions based upon all the knowledge that you have and the experience that you have in a dispassionate way, one can expect a reasonable outcome from a from a range of those outcomes. And there's always black swan events, but for the most part, you can have a reasonable range of outcomes. But to think about qualitatively, how are you going to how are you going to enter the next the next network? It's not enough to say I'm going to travel and play golf every day. It's just not. It's great that you take some time off, but I defy any of you to pay for a month-long vacation, much less a 10-year vacation, and then not be bored of golf after seven straight days. I know there are people who are exceptions to that rule, but for the most part, there's only so much of that you can do. So if you decide, you know, what I'm going to do is I'm going to volunteer at the local food bank. That, that means something to me, and I want to be involved. And it's not for money. It's volunteer. You still don't wake up one day and say, now, how does this work? You have to meet the right people and you have to build a network and you have to understand how it works and get plugged in so that when the transition comes, they're ready for you and you're ready for them. And I, I think it takes some planning to do that qualitatively. It's not about the money. It's about the, the freedom and flexibility. Very cool. I'd like to ask some questions about your podcast, especially about how you get guests on the show and, and about what topics you decide to talk about. You know, it's interesting. I recorded five seasons of the podcast and um, just recently stopped recording episodes because I am putting out a new edition of the book. And so the podcast has 120 or so episodes out there. Um, and I will eventually start another show, whether it's by the same name or not. But for right now, I'm, I'm concentrating on the book and the, and the workbook and the online courses and some things. Um, but we sourced guests um, initially by begging people, would you be on my show? This is what it's about. Um, quite frankly. And after six months or a year, we had people contacting us saying, hey, I'd really like to be on your show. I like what you're doing. And I have a story and I'd like to tell it. And so it started as a, who do I know who can fill in immediately? And if you listen to the first season, which 
I try not to because I had no idea what I was doing. Um, but if you listen to the first season, I, I was just eliciting stories from people. Tell me what it meant initially. Tell me what it meant to not have to work Monday. What did that look like? Well, the show really did morph over time. And I started asking people a much different set of questions. And the biggest question that I asked absolutely everybody, and I'm kind of tempted to put both of you on the spot here and ask, but that's up to you at your show, is what do you want to be when you grow up? And the reason that I ask it that way, and I was asking people 78 years old, what do you want to be when you grow up? And they were dumbfounded because they hadn't been asked that since they were seven and they wanted to be an astronaut, a ballerina, or a pro athlete. So what do you want to be when you grow up? Not what do you want to do? What do you want to be? What are you about? What is your legacy? What is your vision? What are your values? What's your story? And by asking that simple question, I got some unbelievable responses from people who just lit up and had more fun talking about it. And we, we rolled from there. I mean, if you're going to flip the script, I'll take the bait. When I was young and I asked myself, what do I want to be when I grow up? The answer that I always came to was to do something positive for, for the world, be a positive catalyst for change. And in my mind, the way I was able to realize that was uh, to, to be a teacher or a professor or play some role in the community. And I very much still feel that. Of course, our work on the startup also gives me a sense of purpose and meaning. And Preston and I have had very long conversations about what shareholder voting rights are worth and what they should be worth and what corporate governance could look like if there was an efficient market for these shareholder voting rights. And while we often get criticism about, uh, about oh, was it really kosher to sell your votes to generate extra income, we would counter with, with many things. So I would say, as it stands now, I feel some of my, what did you want to be when you grow up, aspirations getting realized in the work that we're doing now. Uh, Preston, maybe- uh, Well, well I, I got good news and bad news for you. The good news is that you're already doing it. The bad news is you're going to do it again three or four different times. You're going to grow up again and again. Don't ever mature. Adulting's a trap. Don't do that. But in terms of what your next step is going to be, there will be other iterations of you. And it's not age-based so much as passion-based. And so I, I, the fact that you wanted to be a teacher or professor, I mean, I felt the same way. I took education classes in school. I wanted to be a teacher. And then I realized I couldn't make a living as a teacher the way I wanted to. So I decided to do something where I could make a great living and then teach and coach and mentor and use that skill set. Speaking and educating and writing and coaching was a lot of fun, but I could do it more as a passion project and less as a paycheck. So Preston, no, no pressure, but Stephen, he, he nailed it. I'd say, you know, what I want to be you know, it's hard to distinguish that from what do you do. I, I kind of do believe that what you do is is who you are to to a good extent. Uh, not not entirely. There's there's some things that aren't captured. I've always been interested in business and and finance. Um, you know, less so on the technology and the you know software engineering or cryptography, any of those things. Um, so business and finance, and I think the the idea of doing something new uh, is also fascinating to me. So. I really do, you know, I guess that's, I'm just selling myself on what I'm doing right now. Uh, and maybe in, in five, 10 years, that'll change. Uh, but uh, at least that's my honest perspective at the moment. 
I will challenge you in the same way that I gave Stephen a pat on the back. I'm going to kick you in the shin. Uh, I'm going to challenge you that if you confuse who you are with what you do, there will come a day when you either don't or can't do what you do, and you will be searching for your own identity. When people say, who are you? And the first thing you say is, I'm an architect. I'm an engineer. That's great until you're not. Then it's, who are you? So I would say at some point in your life, maybe you'll be a husband. Maybe you'll be a father. Maybe you'll be a, 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 a fisherman. I don't know what you are, but, but whatever you are, you're going to be a lot of things to a lot of people. Some of them will be personal. Some of them will be hobbies or interests. You know, what, what am I? I'm, a, I'm an English major and I'm a business owner and I'm a hockey fan and I'm a dad and I'm, I'm all this stuff. It's not just about what you do. It's great that you love what you do. And you should always do something you love because it makes the days something to look forward to. But it's not who you are. This sounds like the Twitter bios when people say, I'm a husband, a Republican or, or Democrat and, uh, and, uh, and a lover in that order or something like that. So what you do is just one component of what you do uh, for your career is just one component of what makes you yourself. Uh, yeah. Thank you for this reminder. It's, it's actually very important. Well, I, I appreciate that. I, I just think there's, there are things that are more important than money and things that are more important than career, both of which are important. And don't get me wrong. I'm a big fan of both money and career. It can't be all you have. Well, I guess kind of going on this sort of bigger picture, uh, mm -hmm. you, how would you, you know, you talked about how you got started in the advisory business, you know, over 20 years ago, but kind of started off on your own 20 years ago, you know, how have things evolved or changed, you know, met your expectations, exceeded or just differed from what you, you know, were thinking back then? Well, they've changed enormously because in the, in the nineties and even before that in the 70s and 80s, where fortunately I was a kid and not part of that. But nonetheless, at that point in time, what financial professionals had going for them that the public didn't was information, access to information that gave them a competitive advantage in a conversation about almost anything. Information is now so readily available, it's hard to tell what's real and what's nonsense. So it's a new problem. We're now flooded with information, some of which is disinformation or misinformation at the very least. But the way the role has changed is it's much more of a consulting, um, coaching, I, I dare use the phrase behavior management. Now, when I say behavior management, people are picturing all kinds of things. Women hate that term. Uh, women hate that term. They don't want their behavior managed. So ladies, if you're listening, I apologize for using the term. I'm using it in a very generic way. Men do like that term because we understand that our behavior is irrational. Women, of course, are always rational just for your audience. But um, we, we know we're irrational and we know that we're going to do exactly the wrong thing at exactly the wrong time because it feels like what we have to do. And we saw it at Y2K when when the tech bubble burst in 2000. It was an ugly mess. And 2008 and nine, the Great Recession was even worse. And COVID had the potential to be like that and wasn't, which is sort of an interesting thing. It it changed the world in a lot of profound and I think unfortunate ways. It also changed the world in some profound and really fortunate ways. So you have to you have to take the good with the bad. But we haven't had, knock on wood, we haven't had a real black swan event in, in 15 years. But when we do, and we will, when we do, um, the most important thing for financial advisors to remember is, number one, we're not therapists, even though we're asked questions that 
border on that type of thing. Um, and number two, we don't know either. And so if you're ever looking for a financial advisor who seems to think that he or she knows everything and knows more than you run, because we don't, we understand the math, we understand the strategy, we understand the history, we've studied this stuff. But human behavior, behavioral finance is so much more powerful than that. And then for years prior to Uber, gentlemen, um, when we were in cabs back in the day, um, when we were in cabs, I called it the cab driver theory. In 1998, 1999, in the back of every cab, wherever I traveled, the cab drivers were telling me which tech stocks they were buying. That's a cause to run. In 2007, the cab drivers were telling me what real estate they were flipping. It's time to run. And I'm not picking on cab drivers. It just happened to be a random conversation with a random person. But by the time random people are doing something, it's too late. Run. And that is, um, that's a lesson that, that we have to consider again and again also. So I think the business has changed a lot. I think it's much more personal. It's much more qualitative. It's much less about inside baseball. It's less about knowledge that other people either don't have or can't get. It's experience. It's real important to say we've seen some of this before, or we've been through this before, or to to tell a couple, yes, um, you know, we've been through this process. We've had uh, clients pass away or become um, uh, incapacitated, or, um, or or we've had kids who've been able to pay for and send their kids to college, or we've been through people with marriages and divorces, and life happens. Um, experience matters, um, but diversity of experience is also big. So I think it's important because most planning is going to be around multi-generational families. So we made sure to have a multi-generational and a diverse workforce too. Like our team is young. We're much younger than most other firms. I'm the old guy, but we're much younger than most firms because just like your doctor, you don't want your doctor to be 20 years older than you because at the moment you need him or her most, they're retired. So you want your financial advisor to be a contemporary of yours or ideally younger than you. But you need to know that they also have folks they're working with who have the experience and the perspective from having done it a long time. So it it allows younger professionals and older professionals to become an incredible team based on energy, based on experience, based on knowledge, based on language, based on culture. And done right, you, you really can reach people where they are, but you can also stay with them for a very, very long time. Wow. Thank you for dropping your wisdom, Eric. And uh, before before we part, uh, we do have some rapid fire questions for you. Uh, just give us the first thing that comes off of the top of your head. Oh and, boy, uh, that's a dangerous game, Stephen. But all right, we'll play. <laughs> I'm sure it'll be fantastic. Okay, here uh, we go. I'm ready. I'm sitting down. Here we go. Uh, who are some independent writers or podcasters that you admire? Um, Daniel Crosby is a, a, an author and I think the brightest mind in behavioral finance and writes books on that subject, which have changed my practice and in many ways, my life. Um, Nick Murray is a, a guy who wrote books some time ago, but wrote them from the perspective of a financial advisor to a financial advisor. So it's a very limited market for that book, but, um, but that was really powerful. And since we're talking about, um, you know, well, podcasters, I will tell you, I, I like Jean Chatsky a lot. I like the work that she does. I think she reaches an incredibly broad audience. Uh, and I think that the, you know, the the Susie Ormans of the world aren't doing anybody any favors. Frankly, Jim, Jim Cramer's not either. Bright guy, but not helping people. In fact, maybe hurting people. But I, I think that Jean Chatsky's doing a really nice job. 
Uh, nice. So, um, what's uh, what's something you know, either a, you know, it could be related to uh, investing, a theme or a, an industry or a company, even, or it could be broader. You know, something that most people are missing that you know you like to point them to. It could either be uh, you know, currently for this point in time, or just sort of a bigger, bigger lesson. Number one, HSAs. People are messing up the health savings account, which is hands down the greatest gift ever given to us by the IRS and, and Congress. You Used properly, the HSA is an unbelievably powerful tool, and people are confusing them with flexible spending accounts, don't know how they work, and are missing the boat. So that's number one. Um, and the number two um, is that I think all of us have to realize we are going to live longer than we expect, and life's going to be more expensive than we imagine. And so planning around that matters. This this fire movement, I think, is interesting. And the idea of being independent early is lovely, but it's also extremely unpredictable and extremely hard to perpetuate. And so I I, I worry that some, some young people don't realize that life is going to get so much more expensive because of planned obsolescence, because of technology, because of lifestyle, because of longevity, that um, staying relevant and in the game matters at any age right now. Interesting. Okay. Uh, for, for our last uh, two questions here, what is your, you know, one of your best or one of your worst investments? You can cover both if you want. And then what's a takeaway you've had from, from each of them? Well, my best investment ever was education. So I know that's not the answer you wanted, but I'm not giving you a stock tip. Um, education was the best investment simply because anything you do to invest in yourself and your career will pay dividends in different ways forever. And so I'm glad I did all of the alphabet soup that this industry provides as, as an option um, because it allowed me to really know more than most of the folks I was talking to, even folks 20 and 30 years older than me. And even though I didn't have the gray hair uh, uh, and I didn't have the, uh, you know, the battle scars, I, I understood some things, at least from a textbook perspective. So I'm glad I did the education. Um, worst investment ever. Again, I got two for you. The first was chasing an IPO back in the tech bubble because I was young and dumb. And I bought um, Netscape at the open and got destroyed and learned a lesson that fortunately was not a very expensive lesson, but I will never do it again. And I haven't done it since. And I won't let anybody in our client base do it. So that was a, a terrible, terrible move, but fortunately something from which I recovered. And the other worst investment, and this will sound counterintuitive, um, is always a personal residence. Buying a house is a horrendous investment. It's it's a wonderful uh, psychological thing. It's great to have a nest. Um, but even if it's fully paid for and you have no mortgage, between upkeep and insurance and taxes and, and all the things that you have to do with a house, a house is a horrendous investment unless it's generating income. Now, real estate for income is different. But real estate that you live in is an awful investment. And so I think people need to stop looking at their house as an investment. And it's it's a place to live and it may grow some equity, but most of the time it will grow less equity than what you've put into it to redo it and to paint it and to put in a roof and a driveway and landscaping. So it's a horrendous investment. Very interesting. Well, I like how you took it a bit more broadly. Um, and uh, it, yeah, also a good point on education, not just being a college degree, but also um, really being about learning uh, more than anything. Uh, Stephen? Yeah, well, there you have it. Eric Brotman of BFG Financial Advisors giving us his wisdom. I legitimately think that me plus Preston in age is about where you're at. <laughs> <laughs>
That that hurts. That was one of the meanest things anyone said to me in weeks. Thanks a lot. <laughs> I'm very more sorry. Wi- maybe I'll more, wisdom, more wisdom. Uh, Listen, yes. Up. No, I, I, I'm old, but I'm wise. And it's a good thing you're far away, man. <laughs> exactly. Also, I agree with you on the HSA. Nothing beats the triple tax advantage status of those guys. Absolutely. And, but don't and, die and, with it. Make sure you use it. You don't want to die with it. The HSA is perfect until you or your you and your spouse are both gone. And then it's a tax problem. So make sure you fund it. Make sure you grow it. Make sure you use it. You can't die with it favorably. Maybe it's a good problem if you die with it. That means you're able to, uh, that either means you didn't have very many medical expenses or you're able to pay, pay for it with, uh, with other assets. Maybe. But when the government takes half of it before your kids get it, it's a bad deal. Suddenly, all the tax benefits are gone in one moment. That's true. Well, <laughs> we'll wrap it up here. Uh, my name's Stephen Zhu, and this was another episode of Time in the Market. Thank you very much for listening.